The date is Wednesday, October 11th. The program and the place is Studio 2. I'm Avi wolf Maneri, And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up today, Avi, we are talking about phones. Bring, 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 bring. Bring, bring from switchboards to landlines to little devices in our pockets. You might be listening to us on your phone right now. Through the WHYY app, I believe. Hi, streamers. (laughs) Two experts are going to join us to talk about the history and fascinating evolution of the phone and interesting changes in our communication styles. Hi, streamers. They are streamers. I'm going to remember that for a while. Um, Some of us have stopped answering Mm -hmm. the phones, Cherry. Keep it on silent. Prefer Mm -hmm. to text. It's kind of become a nuisance. It has. But Studio 2 answers the phone. You can call us 888-477-9499. Or if you hate making phone calls, (laughs) you can email studio2 at org. And in just a few minutes, Delaware Senator Chris Coons will join us to talk about the escalations in Israel and U.S. foreign relations with the country But first, Avi, we're digging into the news. You got the shovel today. Yeah, Center City District has a new report out comparing the the walking populations, the street populations in 25 downtowns across America. So Mm -hmm. this is the number of people on the street, whether they live there, whether they're visiting for the day, whether they work there. And it finds in the study Mm -hmm. that Philly's post-pandemic recovery in terms of the number of people on the street in the downtown area is stronger than most of these peer cities. It's fifth of the 25 cities, 84% of what it was pre-pandemic. So a pretty strong downtown Mm -hmm. recovery by that one measure here in Philadelphia. Did that surprise you, Cherry? What was your reaction when you heard that fifth out of 25? My reaction is, you know, Philly's doing pretty good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I saw that we tied with Midtown Manhattan, which I thought was pretty cool, but that, you know, Nashville is doing better than us. They, they were number a, one. Yes. Yeah, well, they were number one. But, um, you know, I, the facts that I like is that, you know, uh, Philly Center City has more residents in the second quarter of 2023 compared with the same quarter in 2019. Yeah, so and more it's people grown by 12%. Yeah. So people moved into yeah. the city. They want to live downtown. And I think that has helped a lot. I think there's a perception gap there because mm. I, I, I guess I've, I've heard from people and this is an unscientific sample. That, that they're they're more reluctant to move downtown. They don't think it's safe anymore. We've had some conversations around yeah. the office about that. Um, but the data does not bear that out. There are more people living in Center City than there were before the pandemic. Yeah. I'll also note that in some ways this is a reflection of the businesses mm-hmm. that Philly's downtown is built around. So the cities that have had the worst recovery were cities where most of the daily commuter workers or, or a significant chunk of them were tech workers. Ah, yeah. Philly, and, and those jobs have gone remote faster. Mm-hmm. Philly's downtown businesses, with the exception of Comcast, are not as IT-oriented. And mm-hmm. so I think that's reflected in these numbers. The other big factor here is how far are people commuting day to day? We don't so, like commutes here. Right, right. So <laughs> so if, if you're a city where people had to make a long commute into mm-hmm. work, you're more likely to have pivoted out of that job or, or your employer is more likely to give you some slack. Yep. And in cities that are a little more dense, condensed, uh, where the commutes are a little shorter, you're seeing stronger recovery. So so you can't attribute all this to like the actions of the city. Some of it is just the nature of the downtowns themselves. Yeah, and, and Philly is so walkable too. You know, if you live downtown, you're not afraid to kind of walk. And I got to mention that I know people think that crime has been up, but it actually has been down Five percent. And so the perception and and the reality don't always align. That's true. And so we're going to move on. Um, 
I think this perception and this reality kind of aligned. Unfortunately, yeah. (laughs) Thousands of tires, Avi, have been pulled from the Schuylkill to clean up the racetracks for upcoming regattas, and the full work is not done yet. And let me tell you, 3,000 tires, okay, plus tires, have been hauled out of the Schuylkill River. It's part of a dredging project that's aimed to clear the track for rowers. That's according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And while a chunk of the tires came out of the river north of the Strawberry Mansion Bridge, they did not appear to come from an isolated area, and this has prevented that dredging operations to continue as originally planned. This whole project began about three years ago in 2020. Yeah, it's, um, and it's been beset by delays and delays problems. and all it's kinds of issues. Well. Yeah. yeah, and now rowers are worried that the tires removal could mean the full restoration of the race course might not be completed by the end of the month in time for the head of the Schuylkill Regatta and could require more money. So this is... I mean, well, we all we look at the school cool and we're like, ew. Right. Uh, and then they pull out 3000 tires and we're like, not surprised. 3000. That's a lot of tires, man. And there are layers of sort of depressing news here, because when you see like um, a lot in film yeah. where people clearly do illegal dumping consistently, mm-hmm. one of the reasons are you can attribute it to the fact that, hey, like they see the dumping there. And so people sort of congregate around that spot and it becomes a magnet for more dumping. And there's a way to disrupt that cycle, which is clean it up and monitor. But but, but a river, no one this is no one saw the 3000 mm-hmm. tires. Clearly, people just know that you can dump tires in the river I guess without consequence. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's the, it said in an Inquirer article that the Philly police have been alerted and maybe there'll be some investigation here. I would hope so because this doesn't make me feel great. doesn't make me feel proud to be a Philadelphian. The school kill is a, is a wonderful natural resource. Um, rowing is a proud tradition here. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying anything revolutionary. Yes, I would like to see someone try to put a stop to this. I would too. And and by the way, to all the rowers out there, the folks who use the river, the current issue with the dredging has no impact on racing right now because the equipment gets moved out of the way. So you can continue to do what you're doing. Um, Want to move up Broad Street now, North yeah. Broad Street. Um, the closing of a you know kind of legendary local uh, nonprofit furniture store called Uhuru Furniture and Collectibles. They recently announced their last day will be Tuesday, October 31st. They're finishing out the month, and then they will be no more. This is um, this is sort of a it was a, a nonprofit set around Black community economic development and self determination programs, doula training, community gardens, and the like. And they had this uh, used furniture store mm-hmm. that people frequented for about 30 years. They yeah. say that um, economic troubles, this is their, their term, skyrocketing rents, rising prices of gas, food, and goods across the board have created untenable conditions for them. And they will be closing. Uhura Furniture is over at Broaden Parish, very recognizable part of the North Broad Street corridor and uh, a source of you know, good, cheap furniture for a lot of Philadelphians for a long time. Including yeah, and students, and students, students yes. and, and people, low income folks. And I got to say, you, you, you would notice them just driving up North Broad um, because they had all the furniture on on the sidewalk. So you would yeah. see there. And I'd done a story on them years ago about some of the work because they used the money that they would sell get from the selling of the furniture for community projects. Also, I bought a bookshelf from there. I still have it. It was pretty 
pretty good bookshelf. So sad to see them go. Yeah, pretty good bookshelf. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's not like a... <laughs> I mean, you know, I like to thrift a little bit. It's not a rousing sense. But yeah, but yes. they had some nice stuff. And I mean, they were good for uh, futons, dressers, the dining sets, rugs, mirrors, nightstands, and bookshelves too. I never made it. Maybe I have to in the next 20 days. Yeah, go check it out. They'll probably have a really good sale. Um, all right. Final story, Cherry. You yes. Got so did you have your coffee this morning? I'm sipping mine right now. Uh, yes, I had plenty of coffee this morning. If I didn't have my coffee this morning, <laughs> I would you would know. be doing the show by yourself. So if you have a cutoff time for your coffee or you're someone who can drink coffee at midnight and still go to sleep. Well, Avi, there's a reason because mm-hmm. some of What's us don't reason? feel the caffeine buzz. And others do. A new story out of the Washington Post Eating Lab looks at several studies and explains that there is a coffee gene. Bet you didn't know you got one. I didn't know that. We have different variants of this gene that creates an enzyme that helps the body break down caffeine and clear it from the body. It takes about two to eight hours for half the caffeine in your system to break down. About half the people are fast metabolizers. 40% 40% are slow, and everybody else is ultra slow. I think I'm like medium because I have to cut but off I, my caffeine at 2 o'clock or yeah. I'll be up all night. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm medium too, but I guess everyone thinks they're medium probably. That's kind of like you yeah. just always imagine yourself. But you know people who can drink it and then go to sleep. Yeah, um, I <laughs> so. do. And it does explain something to me, which mm-hmm. is that I've always been puzzled by the serving of coffee with dessert. Like, like after the dinner. Yeah. Having coffee. And I'm like, but, but who is this for? Why, why are you trying to stay up now? Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it's a nice taste after having something sweet to have a little coffee. But, you know, it's not like you wouldn't think it doesn't fit that time of day. And I think the reason is because there are these people that have the, the version of the coffee gene that produces the enzyme at a lower rate that breaks down the coffee, you know, much more quickly. And as a result, right. Yep. It clears their system. So I this this explains something to me, like espresso, you know, after dinner type of thing. I think I understand that now, even and, though it's never been me. And by the way, for folks who are wondering, are they a slow metabolizer or a fast metabolizer? There is a service you can get through your doctor to test which version of the caffeine gene you have for those who are curious. Fascinating. Um, we're going to turn to a more serious uh, topic now. The Israel-Gaza war. It's the fifth day since the surprise attack by Hamas, the militant Palestinian group. The Israeli military has been launching airstrikes in Gaza, and the death toll on both sides continues to grow. Around 1,200 Israelis and 1,100 Palestinians have been killed. That includes 14 Americans. Dozens of people, including Americans, are being held hostage by Hamas. President Joe Biden called the Hamas assault, quote, an act of sheer evil. Mm. To find out more about what's happening in Israel and, crucially, the role of the United States here, we have U.S. Senator from Delaware, Democrat Chris Coons, on the line with us from Europe. Senator Coons, thank you for joining us on Studio Two. Thank you, Avi. Great to be on with you today. Yes, um, Senator, I'm sure you've been monitoring what is happening on the ground in Israel. I wanted to give you a moment to react and sort of lay out your position on what's happening in Israel. Well, it was no coincidence that this uh, horrific terrorist attack by Hamas happened uh, almost exactly on the 50th anniversary of the surprise attack uh, of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, This is the worst single day of loss of life uh, to um, the Israel community uh, in decades. Um, As we've seen watching day after day as this has unfolded, uh, it's deeply disturbing to see a targeted and intentional violence uh, against civilians, uh, people who were 
at home on their farms, people who are attending um, a concert in the desert, whole families ripped from their homes at gunpoint, massacred, uh, their uh, corpses violated uh, or dragged off to Gaza to be held as hostages. Um, the Yom Kippur War was a conventional war between nations. This was a terrorist attack against civilians. Uh, and some have called this the single biggest loss of life uh, for the Jewish people globally since the Holocaust. Right. Uh, I think it's important um, that the United States and our core allies uh, make clear that we stand with the people of Israel, their right to self-defense, and that we support them um, in their work uh, against Hamas to secure um, Israel going forward. Uh, I've been actively engaged in outreach uh, with partners, uh, allies of ours uh, in Europe, um, in Amsterdam and France and Italy and the UK and elsewhere. I had thought I would be initially engaging with them on our sustained support for Ukraine mm. and the importance uh, of our NATO allies and dozens and dozens of other partners around the world sustaining our support for Ukraine's fight, fight for freedom. Um, instead, every conversation I've had in recent days has also focused on the importance uh, of the fight mm. against Hamas recognized as a terrorist group uh, by the United States, United Kingdom, and most of our core allies. Uh, Senator Kuhns, on that note, um, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. You know how politics work, and you know that there's a lot of chaos in Washington right now. Do you believe that Congress has the ability to focus duly on the war in Ukraine and the uh, evolving situation in Israel? Uh, I think we have to. Look, it is um, a distracting, um, in fact, a very bad message for the United States Congress to send to the world that on one side of the chamber we've had a House of Representatives uh, where the speaker was forced out and there is the potential of round after round of, of voting in uh, efforts by the Republican majority to find a new speaker and that they left out of our um, supplemental package of funding uh, any money for Ukraine. And on my side, uh, the Senate side, uh, that there continue to be hundreds and hundreds of senior military officials in the mm -hmm. United States in positions that have never been subject to politicization, who are not yet confirmed in a disagreement over a policy about reproductive rights. And there are dozens of ambassadors that have not been confirmed. Um, I have been talking to both Republican and Democratic colleagues uh, to press right when we get back uh, Monday for us to swiftly consider and confirm President Biden's nominee to be our next ambassador to Israel, Jack Lew. But we also don't have ambassadors to a half dozen other countries, so Egypt and Syria yeah. and Jordan and elsewhere. So we need to show that we can focus on both conflicts, provide robust funding for Ukraine, um, additional funding for Israel, and move on from the um, partisan differences that have led to real challenges in our functioning as a Congress. And so I, I got to ask you, you sort of talked about expanding um, support for Israel. What will that look like in your mind? Because we've a uh, U.S. has always been an ally or has been an ally to Israel for many years, provide substantial support. What does expanded support in their time of war look like in your mind? Um, first, emergency supplemental funding for Iron Dome replenishment. Uh, the missile defense system that we have jointly developed was overwhelmed by thousands and thousands of rockets fired by Hamas from Gaza. 
Hezbollah, which is also an Iranian proxy, uh, but is based in southern Lebanon, is well known to have a very large arsenal of sophisticated missiles. Um, I am concerned that we make sure that Israel has the resources to defend itself from missile attack. Mm. Um, President Biden has already taken the initiative to send material from our existing stockpiles. Uh, But frankly, we already needed more funding um, to rebuild the American industrial base that provides artillery uh, and air defense to Ukraine. Uh, We need to add to that uh, the ability to fund air defense uh, for Israel. Um, The thousands of rockets that that were fired from Gaza at the launch of the Hamas attack um, destabilized a lot of areas uh, in Israel and leads to the ongoing possibility of sort of regular attacks. So that's the least we should do. I'll briefly mention one other thing. Um, There was the very real possibility of a resolution of the Arab-Israel conflict of many, many decades. Um, The Saudi Kingdom, uh, Saudi Arabia was considering recognizing Mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that is well worth our continued engagement. I do think that's part of why Iran um, urged attacks and why Hamas launched these attacks. Uh, Senator Coons, in 2018, you introduced uh, a bipartisan measure to spur entrepreneurship in Palestinian territories as a means toward peace. 2020, you urged the Trump administration to release pandemic aid to the West Bank and Gaza to promote the health and security of the Palestinian people and their neighbors in Israel. In other words, I, I, I take from your actions the idea that you believe improving the daily lives of Palestinians is critical to eventually resolving this conflict. Is it not possible that Israel's retaliation will weaken those efforts and in turn create the conditions in which militant groups like Hamas thrive? Are you worried about that? Um, I have uh, for many years now uh, actively supported funding for people-to-people exchanges, uh, particularly uh, with the West Bank, um, and for entrepreneurship by young Palestinians. Um, This was a bipartisan initiative that um, members of both chambers supported, and it came out of a trip that uh, I led uh, with a group of my colleagues a number of years ago. Um, I think that's important for us to continue to sustain, and I think it's important to recognize that um, the humanitarian consequences Um, for people caught up in war um, deserve um, our support. Look, frankly, the United States funds the World Food Program, which provides food into countries like North Korea and Syria and Zimbabwe and Somalia, where um, there are active conflicts or where there are oppressive Mm -hmm. regimes. Um, And I I have long fought for that humanitarian support that helps us distinguish between the policies of terrorist groups or of governments or regimes and the people who suffer through these conflicts. The Palestinian people of Gaza are not all terrorists. And and it's important to say, well, Hamas is a terrorist group and deserves condemnation and we should support Israel and its work against them. There's two million Palestinians in Gaza and we should not allow them to suffer needlessly. And we have just under a minute. Got to ask you, um, there are going to be civilian casualties on both sides. Is there a line? And we only have 30 seconds. Is there a line where you will that, that you believe your party yourself would say um, things have gone too far? And I'm, I'm talking about in the, with regard to support for Israel. You have a, about 15 seconds. <laughs> 
Well, Jerry, um, that is a complex question. And in 10 seconds, I'll say in this moment, I think it's important for us to stand strong with Israel in the face of terrorism um, and to be in regular consultation about how we respect and value human rights and peace while being supportive of Israel's right to self-defense. I thank you for that uh, quick response. That's uh, U.S. Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and just joined us on Studio Two, which you're listening to on 90.9. Hello? 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 This is Studio <laughs> 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. <laughs> and I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, I love that. New edition. Little Mr. Telephone. Is that who there. that was? That is who that was. By the way, Avi, do you have a, a landline at what, home? What do you think? What do, you, do you think I have a landline? You don't look like a landline type no. of guy. <laughs> no, I don't have a landline. Me neither. Yeah. But we're not alone. Only a third of Americans have a plug-in telephone at home these days, which increasingly seems very old-fashioned to have that plug-in phone. A lot has changed in how we communicate since the advent of cell phones, which are essentially little computers that we carry in our bags or pockets. Pay phones. Remember those? Mm, I do. Answering machines. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Even leaving a voicemail message these days is kind of frowned upon. So we thought we'd spend today talking about how phones have changed our interactions and our communication from the first days of Alexander Graham Bell's invention to how we use them today. And we're going to start that conversation talking with Josh Lauer, a professor of communication at the University of New Hampshire. He is writing a book on the cultural history of the telephone, which is fascinating. Josh, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks very much for having me on. And a little later, we'll talk with Washington Post tech writer Heather Kelly, who tracks changes in the way we use technology. And we want to hear your recollections of telephones, party lines, pay phones, and answering machines. You can call us. The number is 888 477 9499 and we promise to pick up you can, you can also email studio to at whyy.org all right josh uh i'm always fascinated in what the initial reaction and blowback is when a new technology is introduced the telephone what did people make of it in its early days well, there was a mixed response because the the first experiments with the telephone weren't always reliable and sometimes People went to demonstrations and the, the phone lines didn't work and they left disappointed. Hmm. Uh, but pretty quickly, it's, it proved its uh, ability to work and uh, it began to get commercialized uh, during the late 1870s. Uh, and pretty soon you begin to have the development of telephone networks in the 1880s. And the first telephone users are really uh, mostly wealthier people, business people. So it's not the kind of thing that immediately went into to homes. Uh, but generally speaking, people were pretty excited about the ability to make phone calls. There was no like moral panic around telephones. It's going to this destroy this or destroy yeah, that. Receiver. Well, there definitely was and and around a couple of different issues. And, and one of them was that early telephone networks uh, were operated by mostly female telephone operators. And so this meant that you had lots of uh, men speaking to unmarried younger women, the telephone operators, oh. and uh, this this caused some some issues and some concern. And the other side of that was that when you had a telephone in your house, that meant that anyone from the outside world could call unannounced 
And uh, whoever that was might speak to somebody in your household, for example, uh, one of your children, and especially a female child. Mm. And uh, there was certainly panic about um, having um, un unsupervised conversations between men and women in the home. Wow. Interesting. So, but how did it change once, you know, phones became pretty commonplace in most households and businesses? How did it change the way we communicated with each other, um, you know, and, and the way we looked at communication? I mean, it, it definitely changed a lot uh, about how people made plans, for example. So, you know, you could call and invite someone to your house, uh, which was an interesting and novel use of the telephone. You could shop by telephone so you could order things. I mean, we're used to e-commerce today and and uh, delivering everything to our house. But this is something that was pretty common earlier in the 20th century. Uh, and it also changed the way that people traveled. Um, you could use public pay phones and you could call uh, when you were traveling, if you were a business person, you could call home and uh, and let your loved no loved ones know what you're doing. Um, but you know, pretty quickly by the 1920s, the telephone is you know mostly integrated into American life and is not seen as you know some uh, special novelty. It's it's really accepted as being something that is typical. And one of the things I find interesting, reflecting on this topic, is that the phone starts out for a lot of people as a shared commodity. Maybe it's a business phone. Maybe it's a party line, if people remember those. And then, so, and then it becomes like a house phone. And then over the years, it just becomes your phone, maybe your cell phone in your pocket. This sort of narrowing of something that was somewhat communal to something intensely personal. What is the sort of effect of that on how we think about the phone? I think that's a really important point. And when we think about you know the telephone today, we think about each person having not only their their own phone, but their own phone number. Mm -hmm. And for most of the history of the telephone, uh, the telephone is a shared resource. It's, you know, there's one telephone in the household, everyone shares, and then gradually during the 1950s and 60s, you begin to have more extension phones and maybe it's more common to have a line in the kitchen and maybe one in your bedroom. But uh, the telephone as a shared communication device is a different way of thinking about uh, telephone communication that is uh, absolutely different today where we think of talking on the phone as you know calling someone directly at a private line, and only you know you would never call someone's cell phone and have somebody else answer. It would be very unusual. Um, so this idea of, of communication as being private, personal, uh, curated, it really falls in line with just larger trends in personalization in uh, communication technologies during the late 20th century and, mm. and today. And so I, I want to have a little bit of fun and talk about some of the phone technology. And I want to talk about party lines. Um, <laughs> and I want to play a little bit of a clip about, you know, sort of, uh, ex you know, showing what this is. And, and this is from the 1959 classic Pillow Talk, where Doris Day and Rock Hudson share a phone line and they try to divvy up who gets to use it and when. Take a listen. From the hour to the half hour, the phone will be yours. From the half hour to the hour, it will be mine. Should either of us receive a call during the other's half hour, he or she will terminate the conversation as quickly as possible. In emergencies, each will exercise a little tolerance. How does that sound? Like a report from the United Nations. You mean you disagree? No. It might work. Well, I hope so. I understand that we're going to have to share this party line for at least another month. We'll just have to try living with one another. 
And so talk about the party <laughs> line. I'm laughing because Avi and I, we, we, we were talking about how this was kind of, this is not something we necessarily grew up with, but, you know, cause, because phone technology has evolved. Talk about the party line. And then I want to go over some of the phone innovations like call waiting and caller ID that we, we, that we experienced. Talk about the party line. What was it? Well, I'm I'm old enough to know uh, to remember having you know one or two uh, phones in a house and having to argue over uh, who can use the, the telephone <laughs> with my siblings, but but the party line is a, a different animal, mm-hmm. and you might have multiple you might have multiple households on a party line, so not only do you have to share it with you know the people in your home, but you know neighbors as well, and there was always a problem with party lines of people listening in uh, on on a mm. call that was for someone else. So the the phone rings, you pick it up. And, you know, if it's not for you, you're supposed to hang up. But, you know, it's, of course, tempting to listen and, and hear what other people are saying. So this is you know, one of the big, big problems of the party line, uh, especially the early versions, was just the privacy of the call itself, in addition to just sharing the resource. And and true confession, I used to listen in on my brother's phone call. I'm glad you're unburdening yourself yeah, like, right now. Yeah, because I, I, I would be in, I had a phone in my room, he had a phone in his room, and I would listen in. We are talking with Josh Lauer, Associate Professor of Communications at the University of New Hampshire, uh, writing a book on the cultural history of the telephone. Before we get you out of here, Josh, got to bring up the voicemail. It's a sea change. Mm-hmm. It's a big innovation in how we use phones. Before I ask you a question about it, I'm going to play this uh, compilation of commercials from the late 70s. These are from Radio Shack, which commissioned voice actors to impersonate celebrities mm. and record answering machine outgoing messages. They came on cassettes. See if you can figure out these voices. Hey, listen, I don't know what I can tell you. There's nobody here right now, you know? But if you turkeys want to leave your name and your number, I mean, all I can do is pass it on to them. You know what I mean? I'll bet you're wondering what the hell I'm doing here. Well, you know, being an expert, I'm here to record your messages. Leave your message. And I swear to you, if you do, I will not cover it up. I will make it perfectly clear. People, people who call, people are the luckiest people in the world. You know why? Because this wonderful machine will record your voice, and I'll call you later. Well, you certainly got a lot of noise. Who gave you this number? Never mind that. I'm not talking to you, and you're not talking to me. This is a machine talking. And for all I know, you may be a kumquat. Here you call again, sounding better than a body has a right to, and leave a message so I will really know that you have called again, and here I go. All right, I think I got Nicholson, Nixon, Streisand, Miss One, and then Parton. Um, maybe, oh, someone, yeah. maybe someone beat me out there. <laughs> uh, just uh, want to ask you, Josh, what did the voicemail change about the way we think about this technology? Well, you know, we call it voicemail now, but that used to be an answering machine message on on reel-to-reel tape. And uh, it changed a lot of things. I mean, one of the big things about the telephone is that before the answering machine, you didn't know who was calling when the phone was ringing. And so if you missed a call, you not only you might not know that someone called, but you certainly didn't uh, have any uh, knowledge about who called and there was no caller ID. Um, So the answering machine becomes, you know, a, a, a big innovation in terms of allowing people to communicate when they're not present. However, it also introduces all kinds of other problems, and some of them uh, being that people feel really, really uncomfortable leaving voice messages. They don't like having their voices recorded. They feel silly, and they feel like they're going to be judged. And one of the reasons that those kinds of pre-recorded uh, comic 
answering machine messages became popular, especially in the 1980s, is because it was thought that these kinds of outgoing messages would relieve the tension or encourage people to leave a message rather than just, you know, hearing, leave your name at, after the beep and then hanging up. Um, so, so these kinds of messages are supposed to be personalizing and inviting. Um, but they also end up being a way that you can personalize your outgoing messages and become kind of like a version of a, of a social media experience where you're you know, curating your personal identity or your household identity by using these kinds of, I, I hesitate to say clever, but uh, <laughs> not novel outgoing messages. People you know, used uh, celebrity impersonations often. There are guidebooks with lots of scripts for outgoing messages, and they're incredibly corny and often also very sexist. Um, but it was just a, a whole genre and a whole craze of outgoing messages, uh, basically trying to dis display your wit and your personality via the phone. And I know people had to record <laughs> over and over and over again to get it just right. As we close out this part of our conversation, uh, Josh, um, can you quickly talk about call waiting, caller ID, three-way calls, you know, voice conferencing. There was a lot of technology uh, that came through on the phone that, and I kind of remember getting busy signals and then we got call waiting and that stopped. Yeah. So again, I mean, before these technologies, you were really at the mercy of the caller. So whoever called, they picked the time and um, you didn't know their identities. And these different add-on technologies mm. that became popular during the, the 1980s and 1990s were really a way for, for the people who were being called to exert some kind of control over the messages that were coming into their home. So caller ID being an important one that, you know, you, you don't have to pick up and you can you can uh, see what the number is. But then all these other kinds of technologies which allow people to um, to work between different calls and to control their communications in real time. Josh Lauer, I will pick up if you call. And I thank you so much <laughs> for joining us on Studio Two. Uh, Josh Lauer is professor of communication at the University of New Hampshire, uh, writing about the history of, of the telephone as a cultural object. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us on Studio Two. Thanks very much. It was fun. And now we welcome in on the other line, Heather Kelly, who has been listening in. She reports on the ways technology affects our everyday lives for The Washington Post and wrote a recent guide to phone etiquette advising people to always text before calling. Heather Kelly, welcome into Studio Two. Thanks for having me. And for the record, you guys texted me to arrange this phone call. So thank you for that as well. There you we, go. Well, our producer did. I got to give credit where credit's due. But thank you for acknowledging that. Heather. And we followed your advice. So there you go. Uh, so I want to talk before we go into current phone etiquette. I wanted to sort of lay out what was what was it like before for folks who may not even remember how we used to um, deal with the phone. Um, what was the etiquette kind of like before we started switching things up with the cell phone? I, I, so this is really funny for me to report this out because I'm in my I'm in my 40s <clears throat> and um, <laughs> I was talking to a bunch of Gen Zers and explaining how answering machines worked, uh, uh -huh. which it's depressing, but also very amusing. Uh, and so I think it's something that's always been evolving, like what how it worked when I was in high school when it was a physical answering machine was different than when it was the voicemail you could call in to listen to from anywhere. Uh, I think the original answering machines were interesting because they're playing this message out loud and you sort of drag it out, hoping hoping that somebody can hear it and get to the phone in time and decide to answer. Mm -hmm. um, so, so much of how the technology works dictates sort of the etiquette for using it. Going to bring in some comments here. Heather. Yes. Get ready. <laughs> Otis says, don't expect me to pick up if you call me unscheduled. Mm. I oh. will always respond to a text, though. So is that the default now? 
You, you got to text first. Do not call someone unscheduled under any circumstances unless it's an emergency. Is that really what we're going with now, Heather? Wouldn't it be cool if society had rules like that that were just like <laughs> blanket rules? Yes. It totally depends on the person and the relationship, but it's a starting point, right? If you don't know what to do, if you're trying to reach out to somebody, the more polite way to start would be with a text message. Yes. If you're dealing with somebody older who doesn't text, who maybe um, I heard from a lot of people who have issues texting, they say they're, they're thumbs don't work too well on the phone um go ahead and give them leeway to call you whenever they feel like it you know everything depends on people but i i think a good starting place is to go with what seems courteous by the way matt agrees with you uh, matt says i prefer a text if you need to talk on the phone i prefer you text first just to make sure i'm not driving or otherwise engaged but jeff says why do some of you want someone to check first to call you why can't they call you and they don't get an answer, leave a message, and you call them back when it's a better time. That's a good point. I mean, I prefer I, I prefer that people not call me. I'll just put that out there. But I do like to talk to people on the phone. So I, I, you talk about these preferences, and, and and is it very generational here? Because some people like to call, some people don't want you to call. Yeah, the especially the texting ahead of time is a huge generational difference. Um, one thing that's that's really interesting to me is is how upset people get when you're like, maybe <laughs> maybe don't call, maybe just wait and see. But so what's happening a lot of times is imagine somebody calls you in the middle of the day without warning, you sort of feel obligated to answer because yeah. our first thought is always, is it an emergency? And so that's what texting ahead really helps with. It's like, hey. I'm not dying. I'm just calling to say hi. Yeah. Let me know when you're free. And then on the other side, we really shouldn't answer unless we're in a place to talk or we're worried. So here is where and, and I, I feel this comment from Jennifer, like I agree with Jennifer, but I don't know why I agree with Jennifer, mm -hmm. who says I despise voicemails, <laughs> especially when people leave cryptic messages and don't tell you what it's about. I mean, I get if it's cryptic. But I don't know why I should be annoyed by voicemails, and yet I find myself annoyed by them. And I, I just, I'm trying to psychoanalyze myself. Help me out, Heather. Why, why I know don't we like voicemails? Okay, help me out. All right. Break it down. So, do you listen to your voicemails or do you read the transcriptions of them? More and more I read the transcriptions, but I used to listen to them. I think so. There's two reasons. One, it just takes longer to listen to something, to put your full amount of focus on it, than it does to scan a transcription mm -hmm. or a text message. But also, voicemails are still stored locally on our phone, and they're filling up our precious memory. And sometimes yes. you'll get mailbox full, uh, and it's just sort of the silly, antiquated idea that we're storing files of voices on our phone for some reason. Um, so those might be two reasons. It's a little annoying to everybody. But I will sense. say, I my grandma passed away years ago, and I, you know, I kept this old phone with her voicemail on it for so many years. So let's talk about when it's good to leave a voicemail. And by the way, I was so glad I had it. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? I have many. I have many of those as well. Uh -huh. by the way. Yeah. And I so I've gone through this, too. And it's really actually it's not as easy as you think to save them someplace to keep yes. for later. So that's mm -hmm. a whole other topic. But um, sentimental reasons, like if it's my birthday, call me and sing me happy birthday and I will save that. Um, if you're a family member, somebody whose voice means something to you, you do want to hear it sometimes. You want them to leave these memories of you. Um, voices are something we don't think to record a lot. Like we're always taking pictures and sometimes it's on videos, but just somebody talking is such a, a precious thing to be able to hear. So if you have a close personal relationship with somebody where they would like to hear your voice, go for it. Let's bring in a couple of related comments. Rabia says, I like calls from people I like. 
texts from people <laughs> who need something. Sheldon says, I like hearing from people over the phone. I really don't mind at all. It lets you know people uh, are thinking about you. Um, and I would rather hear voices versus a static text. And uh, I don't know if I, I so much agree with Sheldon, but I guess I worry that in the long run, if we shed that phone call completely, mm-hmm. that we are losing connection with people, especially the people that don't live in our community, you know, our long distance friends. Don't you worry about that a little bit, Heather Kelly, um, that, so, that we're going to just somehow this is going to fade away. And at some point we're going to look back and be like, man, I miss that. I think I think what it is, is phone calls are important. Like one thing we covered a lot is is reaching out to people and having connections should not end. I think people are being more selective about it. If you think about how many forms of communication you have a day, you've got the Slack ding, the signal, the iMessage. Uh, you've still got email sometimes. <laughs> like you have all these ways of communicating. And so I think we're being a lot pickier about which ones we're going to allow to be a phone call. And we're saving it for those people, for the people we do want to really connect with and not the people who want to see uh, something about our car warranty, perhaps. But Heather, you can get in trouble with a text. Let me tell you, because a text <laughs> doesn't have nonverbal communication. It doesn't yes. have tone. Yeah. So you could get in trouble that a text that, you know, that you say, it could be misinterpreted. Yeah. Exactly. So when when should you like not text and just pick up the phone or leave a memo or voice memo or something? Um, because, I mean, you do not want to piss people off. It anything emotional or that requires nuance or tone, you pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. Anything that requires facts that you don't want to get wrong, that's when it's really great to text. If you're having an argument, mm. <laughs> first of all, mm. try and do that in person because you can also see body language. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. Yeah. There, FaceTime might be a fun way to have an argument if you're into that. <laughs> uh, but if not, a phone call and definitely never argue over a text-based medium unless you're like wanting your lawyers to be able to see the communication. Um, But if not, call them up. Because that could be exhibit A. Yeah, there it is. Um, So before we let you go, a couple minutes left, uh, Heather Kelly from the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Um, I just need to ask about group texts because I can't figure out how I feel about them. Mm. I'm on several. Sometimes I love them and boy, sometimes they're annoying. They're like the new voicemail um, because I'm not interested in whatever the group text is obsessing about in that moment. Uh, you have a lot of group texts. What do you feel about them? Do you feel they're net net positive, net negative? Where do you fall? So like the group texts are where I keep in touch with my girls all day long. Like I yeah. can be like, oh, I don't feel good. And I'll get a, a, a bunch of beautiful women telling me that I look great and I'm smart. So I don't know. <laughs> this might be individual. But like a lot of people I know in my life, like this is our little support groups and it's close friends. They're small groups. When they get bigger, it's a little unwieldy. And mm-hmm. also, you know, you don't know who in that chat will be sharing the chat outside of the chat. Yes. You know? So um, famously, one of my favorite examples is Ted Cruz. When there was the big power outage in Texas, uh, his wife went on to the group chat to be like, we're going to Mexico. <laughs> Does yep. anybody want to go to Mexico? And it was leaked to the New York Times. So just treat big group chats as if somebody would leak it to the New York Times. It's about curation and trust with those group chats, let me tell you. Yes, because exactly. your phone is ping, 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 ping when it gets too long, too large. I got to ask you about dating culture quickly uh, and and text minute, text messages and phone calls. Which do you prefer? Because I'm a person who likes to hear voices versus spending an entire relationship kind of texting back and forth. Because it makes me wonder, uh, you know, how how are things going to how the communication is going to be? And we have about a minute as we wrap up this segment. Absolutely. I mean, I think dating, especially like they're using the same text message openers for everybody. Like you're not getting a lot of detail about who this person is, 
or what they want, like the sooner you can switch that to a phone, the better. And then that way, you know, like, does this person sound like a Muppet? And is that a deal breaker for me? <laughs> Muppet. Muppet. <laughs> well, I guess we'll leave it there. Heather Kelly, uh, technology reporter for the Washington Post. Oh, that was good. Uh, thank you for joining us today on Studio Two. I was going to try to do a Muppet impersonation <laughs> as I said goodbye, but I'll, I'll, I'll spare everybody. Heather, thanks for joining us. Anytime. I like Heather, man. Um, and that wraps up our show, Avi. For today, our producers are Debbie Builder-Page, Murray Besser, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer for today. You can head on over to whyby.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Aaron Rainbow Connecting with all of you out there. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. We talk about the growing effort to ban gas-powered leaf blowers in our region and around the country. That's tomorrow on Studio 2.